You're listening to the sermons of First Lutheran Church. I'm Pastor James Hunick, and I'd like to welcome you. I pray that this sermon will help you in your Christian faith. If you'd like to join us, you can come to First Lutheran Church at worship at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with a Bible study in between. For more information about our congregation or the Lutheran tradition, please go to www.youhaveaplace.com. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We have been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians uh, lately. We began looking at the opening section of St. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And he talked about how Jesus is enough for the congregation in Corinth. That when they received Jesus, they had everything. All gifts, all power, all spiritual gifts, everything they needed from God. The next section was about divisions in the church. And we talked about what it means that the church is currently divided as it is, and how Christians should approach thinking about denominations in this divided Christian world. Today we're moving on to the next section, verses 18 through 31. And it looks at the the cross and the question of how crazy is the cross when the world looks at it? It looks like foolishness, like nothing, worse than nothing, like the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone. But to us, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God for our salvation. St. Paul gives us some words about what it would have looked like to the people who were there at the time to the Corinthians. Their congregation would have been made up of Greeks and Jews, right? And so he tells us the kinds of things that they saw as powerful. He says, for Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. He asks about the debaters of the age, the scribes, the powerful and amazing people. We know enough about Greek society to know what St. Paul is talking about. At this time, and through much of Greek society, it is the the scholar, the, the wise person, the philosopher, who is the peak of society. You know some of their names. Plato, right? You've heard that one before, I'm sure. He is the one who said that the the perfect king, the ruler, was supposed to be the philosopher king, right? The wise man who knows the truth about reality. Socrates also. Aristotle. Big names even now. You might not know people like Diogenes, who started the school of the Cynics, or Zeno, who began the school of the Stoics. The Stoics are making a comeback right now. Many people are recommending reading the journal of Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor a hundred years after Jesus ascended into heaven still following this school that would have existed at the time Paul is writing. It's a big deal 
what these, th- these different schools of philosophy were doing, and they lasted for centuries past the founder who made them. We know that this is a big deal in the Bible because it talks about it, actually. When Paul goes to Athens in Acts 17, it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's kind of the Palestinian way of coming to Athens and saying, what are they doing debating philosophy all day long? Jews also had expectations, the things that they thought were powerful. It wasn't the wisdom that the Greeks had. It was signs. We see that in the Gospel of Matthew when they come to Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 1 says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Happens over and over again through the Bible. Show us a sign to tell what authority you have to do these things, Jesus. And he almost always replies with, No, you're not going to get a sign from me. I don't dance to your tune. But you can see why, if you look at the Old Testament, why they would say that. Deuteronomy points back to Egypt and says, You saw the signs and wonders. Deuteronomy 6.22 And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. Or Joel chapter 2, with this expectation. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. Wouldn't that be a sign? Wouldn't that be a wonder? That is what they were expecting. And so anything that is powerful, anything that is good, you would see Jews expecting the miraculous to accompany it, like it did with the prophets. That was their expectation from God. And with that, we read these words. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And again, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Of God. Sometimes I think we, we forget how strange the cross actually is. How horrifying it is, stripped of all of our history and tradition. One of the ways that we see this is the way that Matthew chapter 20 is interpreted. This is the story where the the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want you to give me a favor. And he's like, what do you want me to do? She says, when you come into the kingdom, put my sons, one on your right and one on your left. 
when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. He turns to them and says, can you drink the cup that I drink? They say yes, and he says that. Then he says, it is not my place to, to, uh, to give, tell you, one on my right, one on my left, that is for those that it is prepared for. Now, most of the time, when we talk about that, and this is how I was taught when I was young, we think, we don't know who will be sitting at Jesus when he comes in his glory. When he's on his glorious throne, who will be in his right and his left? We have no idea. It's prepared for someone. Probably someone that we don't expect. And that is absolutely wrong. And you want to know why? Because we don't read Matthew like a book. We read it pericope right by pericope. But if you actually read Matthew, you know, we know exactly who is at Jesus' right and left when he comes into his kingdom. It says in Matthew 27, And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. When Jesus comes in glory and enters into his kingdom, it's already happened. His glorious throne was a cross. His amazing crown was thorns. And his wise counselors were robbers who died next to him. Kind of weird, right? That's not a glorious throne, an amazing crown. That doesn't sound like a kingdom I want to be in. Consider what it is that we have right up here. Look at that thing. We've added all sorts of beautiful stuff to it, right? We made it nice and smooth, this cross in front of us. We added some varnish. There's a little metal and it's pretty shiny. It's big and beautiful. It fits in our architectural style, so it looks really amazing. I want you to strip it of that in your mind. Get rid of the metal that is nice and shiny and beautiful. Take off the beautiful varnish. Make it instead rough wood. Cut hastily without any thought of beauty not sanded, so there's plenty of splinters on it. Now add a body right up there. Not back in Palestine, right in front of you. A man with nails through his wrists. A crown of thorns on his head. Add blood dripping down from the arms. Flowing like a river down the center, a head bowed because he is too weak to lift it, feet mangled by the nails. Is that something you put up in front of a group of people? Is that beautiful? That's the God of the Christian church. Paul says we preach Christ crucified. You can see why it would be a stumbling block for Jews. Foolishness to the Gentiles. And for us as well. 
It is the same for every culture that has ever come to it. Because it looks like nothing. Worse than nothing. But for us, this horror, this torture and death is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is salvation itself. When we look on the pain and death of Jesus Christ, we see only glory. And it has to rework what glory actually means in our minds. Jesus' true throne is torture. His true crown bites into his flesh. And from that cross, he reigns over his church until the day he returns. The church he won by this holy sacrifice, the church he marks with his holy body and blood and gathers us together to receive this death for our eternal life. And he came down to do it so that he could enter into our life so much that even when we go down into our graves, he can be there with us in death. So he can bring us through that grave to the resurrection on the last day. And it's that cross that defines the church in the here and now until Jesus returns. I found myself in a strange confluence of events lately. All of my media consumption has randomly pointed me towards the Vikings, which is really weird. I've been playing God of War on my PlayStation it's all about a guy who goes and fights the Norse gods. Pretty amazing. Lots of background about Tyr and Loki and Thor and all of that stuff. I've been listening to podcasts about the Viking Age. Just sort of randomly came up in my normal podcast feed. And of course, the Northman just came out on streaming services. I watched that too. And it's interesting looking at their perspective on Christianity. In the Northman, they had a little scene where they had Christian slaves there. And one of the guys said, they have a corpse God. Isn't that right? We have a corpse God, don't we? Jesus who died on a cross. And when they want them to go somewhere, they say, come on, blood drinkers. That's what the world thinks of our craziness, right? It's baffling because it doesn't make sense. They needed a God who would go and slay people. The high purpose of their life was to go and die in battle so they could go off to Valhalla. Foolishness is this cross where you would go and die for nothing. But what about us? What about in America? If Jews seek signs, if Greeks want wisdom, if Vikings want valor, what do Americans want? We want our religion to work. I think that's it, right? We're a very practical people. We don't care about highfalutin theories. 
and book learning, right? We want our religion to do what it's supposed to do, to function in our lives. And if it doesn't work, we jettison it and we find something that does, right? And I think many Christians see Christianity as an instrument towards gaining something for life. We look at our religion as instrumental in making life better. And this isn't just me talking. This is what surveys have shown. There was a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. It came out in 2005, which means that the people they surveyed and the interviews they did, they're no longer teenagers. They're parents themselves. And one of the big findings in this was everybody they interviewed, except for a vanishingly small number of people, saw that religion is there to get something done for us. A 14-year-old from Massachusetts said this, I think it's just important to have a belief system because I think it helps you. What you believe is how you live. Any belief system is good as long as you have one. It's about fulfillment. A 16-year-old Catholic from Florida said, quote, The important thing in a religion is connecting yourself to the spiritual side of yourself and fulfilling that. As long as you feel fulfilled, you have a spiritual experience and you're good to go. Right? Another one said, talked about therapy, almost. Quote, it's important that, it's important, religion is, not like major important, but religion can help you get through a bad day. They summed it up with this, quote, What our interviews almost never uncovered among teens was a view that religion summons people to embrace an obedience to truth regardless of the personal consequences or rewards. Now, these are teenagers from 15 years ago, but where do you think they learned it? Did they invent it? No. We taught it to them. The problem with this is I want you to think about those quotations and throw it up next to a Savior who died on a cross. That horror that we saw before. To have a belief system, do you need a Savior who sacrifices his life? No. To find spiritual fulfillment, do you need a death on a cross? Absolutely not. You can find that sitting around and meditating. To get therapy, do you need torture and death? <laughs> of course not. You can go buy that. We have to be sure that we don't have an instrumental view of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Is he there to cope with your problems? Is that why Jesus came? Is Jesus here to make a better society, to fight a culture war and make sure America stays a Christian nation? Is he here to establish morality for your children? Is he here to make you feel good when you leave church on Sunday? Put those thoughts 
next to the blood of Jesus dripping down that cross. Jesus did not come to make your life better. He did not come to give you therapy or to feel good. He did not come to bring you fulfillment. He came to die for you and raise you from the dead on the last day and call you to the cross like him. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. A while back, there was a series of shootings in churches. Insurance companies emailed out all sorts of things that you could do. Lock your doors when the worship service starts. Hire guards. Develop a system with the police. Figure all these things out so you can stay safe. My church discussed that. You know what they didn't discuss? This. If only we could be found worthy of martyrdom, of proving to be true disciples who could die for his name. If only. That's what the apostles said. When they were whipped for Jesus, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name. This is the foolishness of the cross. This is the craziness of a God who dies for us. And it's the power of God for your salvation. To follow someone who took up suffering, who died for you, who went up onto a cross and was tortured to death so he could enter your life so you can live forever. Our life will look like the cross. And it's the power of God for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our sermons. If you have any questions about anything that you've heard or anything about the Lutheran tradition, I would love to answer them. Please contact me at pastorhuenink at youhaveaplace.com.